Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reform, Puritan literature, reading, especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another Reformers Bookcast, a podcast put on by Reformers Bookshop. My name's Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers Bookshop, and today we have a, a guest with us all the way from Scotland, James Eglinton. Thanks for joining us, James. Thanks, Thomas. It's really a privilege to talk with you. As I said just before we started recording, it's surreal because you're the first Eglinton I've ever met who is not in my immediate family. So what a strange thing to get to talk to another Eglinton <laughs> in Australia about Bavink. That's it. Um, I guess I, I have a question for you before you question me. Oh, okay. Do you spend most of your life telling people there's only one G? Yes. Do Australians always add another G and make it Eglinton? Yes, yes. In fact, um, I, I once yeah, had a story of my life. I once had a high school teacher who was uh, my second cousin or something. So he was in Eglinton. And the first thing he did in class was he wrote on the board E G G L I N G T O N G, and he said, "Spell it however you want. I don't care." <laughs> and then on the flip side, another uncle I had um, would refuse mail if his surname was spelt wrong. He would just yeah, send I'm it back. Yeah, tempted to do that sometimes as well. <laughs> I once turned up to, to a church to preach, and on the notice board it was. E G G L I N G T O M. Yep. So I was so tempted just to sit in the pew, and I, I'm not the guy who was advertised to preach, so I'd like to hear him when he arrives. All right, let's let's we talk about Eglinton all day long. Uh, James, you're the author of a new biography on Bavink, and while we're on surnames, actually, I've heard it Bavink or Bavink. What's what's the right way? Uh, Bavink. So as Bavink. long as you emphasize the first half, so it's not Bavink. 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 Yeah. Okay. So Bavink, a critical biography. Um, and it's one of, there's not a huge number of biographies on, on Bavink, are there? There are six previous biographies. So okay. five in Dutch, one yeah. in English. So over a hundred years, it's quite a lot, but he's the kind of figure who draws biographers. Yeah. Okay. But in terms of English biographies, it's one of two then? One of two, yeah, yeah, fairly different to the first English biography. So this is the first, um, I guess, original biography in terms of, you know, it's all based on primary source research. Mm. Um, so the previous English biography was like an English language um, mix of the two main Dutch biographies. Okay. Rather than, you know, primarily based on uh, work with archival sources and letters and diaries and his own publications and manuscripts. Oh, that's good. So it makes it quite unique then. Um, but before we get into the biography itself, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, James? What do you do? Sure. So I teach Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, so I'm a senior lecturer here. I've been working here for the last seven years. Um, before that, I was um, working in the Netherlands, actually, at the university where Bavink had been a professor. So I was on the faculty there for three years. Uh, before that, I was um, a student studying theology in Scotland. I was an assistant pastor for three years while I was doing that. Um, so that's the kind of professional life thus far. So, so when then did you start getting into Bavink himself? Was it when you were at that university where he was teaching? No, it was before that. Uh, I discovered him while I was still a student. So I've been reading him for quite a while now. I was a student at the, it was called the Free Church College back then. It's now Edinburgh Theological Seminary, but it's a Presbyterian Seminary in Edinburgh. And I was there as a ministry candidate and uh, doing a theology degree. And these books started to come out in English by Herman Bavink, and I hadn't heard of him before that. And uh, so I started reading him then. I had a professor who was 
who'd read a little bit of Bevink before uh, I had and um, kept on recommending him to us as a class. And I picked it up and read and have been trying to read everything that I could find by him that came out in English. And then eventually I learned Dutch and then um, just ran off <laughs> to the Netherlands, I guess, and spent three <laughs> years really happily working on him there. But I ended up there because of my work on Bavink. So okay. I, did a PhD, I did a PhD on him in Edinburgh after I finished at seminary and um, on his theology of the Trinity. And mm-hmm. um, the Trinity is, he thought, revealed in the world around us. Um, right. And um, then after that, ended up in the Netherlands and um, worked there for three years and then came back to Edinburgh. So I've been reading him for ages really happily and still find he's such a fruitful figure to engage with, a really stimulating Christian thinker. Um, so you you mentioned before that he's the sort of guy who drew um, biographers, particularly in the, in the Dutch. Uh, what What is it about Bavink that's so fascinating? I think... Th- there are two, maybe two ways that you could look at that. Um, one is Bavink simply as a theologian. You know, so when we think of great theologians, we think of people who are real masters of scripture. You know, they they know the languages, um, not just in a like nowadays. You know, mm. we finish at seminary and you can use Bible works to engage with Greek and Hebrew, but Bavink was around well before then, so he really knew Greek and Hebrew extremely well. Um, but if you think of great theologians, you know they they read scripture really carefully. Um, they're excellent at explaining how ideas have developed across the history of the church, and they're really good at then articulating that in their own day and age and in their own context. So Baving does all of that and does it superbly in the modern world as well. So he he was born in the middle of the 19th century in 1854. He lived until 1921. So he lived through World War One. Uh, he was a contemporary of, of my grandfather. Um, mm. So it's not that far back. Yeah. Um, so he's a, a really outstanding theologian, one of the best of the 20th century. Um, so on that front, his theology is just great theology, really well written. Um, But the other level at which he's so fascinating, and particularly why he draws biographers, I think, is that as well as doing what we think of maybe conventionally as theology, you know, so writing systematics, talking about doctrine, he also wrote lots of material on topics that we wouldn't normally think of as the stuff that theologians write about. So um, he wrote biographies, he wrote a book Mm. on uh, how to raise teenagers, um, he wrote uh, books on war, on the role of women in society. Uh, he was, and he did lots of things as well. Like he was a member of parliament for a decade. Um, he was a, a poet. Um, he was a travel writer. Um, he just did so much stuff. He was a pioneer in thinking through educational theory. Um, he was a national newspaper editor, and, and the list just goes on and on. He was a Bible translator. Um, he was an ethicist. I mean, it just goes on and on with the scope of what his life was directed towards. And that kind of a life that is so rich um, in terms of content, in terms of the people that he engaged with, and in terms of the impact that his life had on his own society, is a, is really fascinating. So, so in, in the biography, I talk about him as, as a polymath, yeah. uh, someone who's engaged in lots of different disciplines over the course of his lifetime, and on the whole, doing a really good job of it. And that's very impressive. I think that you know, draws us mere mortals with curiosity because, you know, we tend to focus our lives just on one thing or, you know, and the kind of socioeconomic climate that we live in now, quite often young people are told, you're not going to have one career, you might have three or four just because jobs aren't that stable and you might have to retrain at something. Mm. But to see someone like Bavink, who's intentionally aiming to do all of this with his life, uh, that's very unusual. And biographers are drawn to that because we want to try and explain or understand how does this all fit together? Why would one person 
choose to do all of this and how did they pull it off and what motivated them what kind of life is this yeah so so let's let's pull into that a little bit so he was obviously a smart guy um yeah but what, what was it about his life that drew him into all these different areas as well or, or maybe what, what is it about his theology was there something in there that was driving him into those areas yeah, I think that it's actually his understanding of the nature of Christianity, that it's a faith for all of life. And right. um, it's something that should impact uh, you know, your body as well as your soul. Uh, it should impact Monday to Saturday. And not just impact, it actually has the power to redefine and yeah. to make holy Monday to Saturday, as well as you know, reforming what you do on Sunday and, and how you worship God in public worship or also in private moments of worship. Actually, Christianity is is so broad in scope. And um, Bavink was part of a church tradition that thought a lot about that because, um, so if you go back a little bit into the history of the Netherlands and the history of Europe, uh, you have the French Revolution happening before all of this. And that's a very deliberate attempt to secularize every area of life and to um, drive Christ's lordship out of all of life and instead to have a, a completely secularized view of the entirety of life where there is no God, mm. no master over you. And that had an impact in the Netherlands and you have secularizing forces. Um, and Bavink was part of a church tradition or a theological tradition that reacted to that by saying, no, we actually think that the Christian faith um, contributes to all of life or has something to say to all of that. In fact, that it redeems all of life and that God is, or that, that Christ is Lord over every square inch of human life and of, of your own life and my life, to use the language of Bavink's colleague, Abraham Kuyper. So yeah, yeah. it's part of a way of thinking about Christianity that says this is a, it's a truly holistic faith. Um, it's not a, a kind of faith that's limited just to bits of your life. Um, and, you know, People, a lot of Christians talk about that in some kind of theoretical sense where, you know, like I said before, you might have one career, let's say, yeah. you know, you, you're you an accountant or you're a sports person or something like that. And you really try and think through, OK, if I'm going to live this particular life to the glory of God, what will that look like? How do I think it through? And that's really, you know, fascinating, worthwhile and noble. But if you see one person who has what we could call multiple careers or, you know, multiple contributions to lots of different areas of life and thought and society. And he's got this um, Christianizing vision that applies to all of it. Um, that's So that's the kind of allure of Bavink's life to talk about the previous question. Um, but it's also just what he thought about the Christian faith when he would talk about it as a Catholic faith, as something that um, addresses every concern of life. And, um, and that's really important, isn't it, for, for us today, because we uh, still have those elements of, um, of I guess, uh, that sort of postmodern relativism coming through that you can, seg you can segment your life and you can live different, different ways yeah. in different parts of your life and you can have your Christianity but let it stay in the corner over there, don't, don't let it impact your work or things like that. Yeah. So it yeah. sounds like he's a really important guy to read in terms of um, living the Christian life holistically yeah. in, in our current situation. Yeah, uh, very much so. So I think for evangelicalism generally, um, I, I mean, I've only been to Australia once, so I can't really speak about it there with too much um, authority, but certainly in the UK, for example, um, evangelicalism tends to view the Christian faith as something that addresses private devotions mm. and church going. 
Um, but for a lot of evangelicals, um, it just hasn't dawned on them that actually Christianity does address those things, but so much more. Um, I remember when I was an undergrad student, I, I used to go to the University Christian Union, and um, so some of, and some of the students there would ask me, so, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, I want to live all of life for the glory of God. It was my desire then. And I would give an answer about how life was going in general. Uh, but then the next question would always be, oh, yeah, yeah, but how is it going spiritually? As though, you know, what I just spoken about with my studies and trying to work, you know, hard for God's glory and as though, as though that wasn't really a spiritual concern. Yeah. Um, and as though those two things were very um, detached and divorced. So I think for evangelicals in general, a lot of the time it just hasn't occurred to them that Christianity does say so much more about all of life. And for a lot of Reformed people, um, um, so Baving's own perspective would be a lot of Reformed people think that Christianity or that Reformed Christianity is about the reformation of the church. And it's about, you know, reforming um, what we do on Sundays again. And it's about reforming our doctrine in terms of, you know, being made right with God, justified by faith alone and so on and saved by grace alone. But Baving's cr critique of a lot of Reformed people is that they don't realize that actually the Reformation goes on and on throughout mm. the rest of your life as well. And that w whatever you know field you're called by God to, to work in with your life and to invest your life, Christianity has a lot to say that's, um, that shapes your view of life and the world. Um, so he's a really challenging figure to read, actually, um, like that, a really helpful figure in many ways. Um, uh, because he, he, especially if you can read him in lots of the untranslated Dutch texts that address like sports, for example, how do you think about taking part in sports Christianly? Bavink has a lot to say about that. Wow. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. So, but if you just dip into bits and pieces, maybe you don't get a picture of that. There's actually an entire life that's trying to do all of this and think it through. So again, that's part of what I've tried to provide the biography for to show readers um, the, the bigger picture. Well, that's, that's great. So it sounds like your biography is a good place to start in terms of getting a, a broad sweep of what Bavink's all about and how he became the man he is, he was. Um, if we move then into uh, Bavink's work itself, once people have read your biography, they're going to want to read more of Bavink. So um, what what are some key works that he's produced uh, that, mm -hmm. that we should start at? Mm -hmm. I think... He himself was actually quite attentive to this, and he tried to write for multiple levels of audience, mm -hmm. um, which is also just fascinating as well. That you know, you might think of him as an ivory tower theologian, and uh, you know, he did live in an ivory tower intellectually in lots of ways. But he also wrote lots and lots of newspapers. But he also tried to write theological works yeah. for different age groups and different levels of education. So the work that he's best known for is his Reformed Dogmatics. So that's a four-volume, high-octane, heavy-hitting work in, Great place in to start. <laughs> Christian doctrine. So for him, that's the place to start if, for example, you're a theology student. Yeah. So if you're really pursuing high-level knowledge, then for him, that you know, that's the classic resource work that he thinks you need, and that's why he writes it, so that someone will guide you from the text of Scripture through the history of the Church to articulating the faith in the present day. Um, so if that's the level that you're at, that's the place to go, and it's a really worthy investment of all the time it will take you to read it. Mm -hmm. But he also knew that not everyone has a theology degree or needs to have that or can have that, and especially in the modern world where people are really busy with their careers. So after he wrote the Reformed Dogmatics, he then wrote 
a shorter one volume version of it called the wonderful works of god mm -hmm. and that is intended for people who do have a you know decent level of education they have a you know they've gone to university but not in theology so that's a that's a superb work um it's beautifully written really well translated as well the chapters are all very short um there are lots of them but you know you can read one a day in not too many minutes and then by the end of it you've been given a really beautiful tour of how Christian theology works and what mm -hmm. it contains. Um, so that's a great work. He also wrote a shorter version of it still for effectively for high school students or for, you know, first year undergrad students or, you know, 18 or 19 years old. And that is coming out in English. So it's not out yet, um, but Next two of, year, well, one of my former PhD students and uh, which is Cam Clossing, who's now in Australia. You guys have the, yeah, the blessing be, of having, be on the podcast having later on. Yeah. So he and one of my four, one of my current PhD students, Greg Parker, have just finished translating that. So that's aimed at a different level still. Um, there are some other really great works as well that are available in English. Um, if you're interested in um, apologetics um, pitched at a popular level, he has a book called Philosophy of Revelation, okay. uh, which is just a great, great book. Um, and um, there's another book that also you, you can, translated uh, that one. Is that right? No, no. So um, two of my former PhD students, again, okay. Grace Utanto and Corey Brock, um, well, uh, produced a new tr critical translation of that. Um, but it's it's a really great work in, in apologetics. Um, there's another book that, that Cam and Greg worked on called The Sacrifice of Praise. And that was probably Bavinck's most successful popular level work okay. um, in his own lifetime. So it went through multiple re-editions in the Netherlands. And it's a book written to prepare the ordinary Christian for preparing to profess their faith publicly by taking part in the Lord's Supper. Um, and particularly when you go to do that for the first time. Um, so for Bavinck, by doing this, you identify yourself publicly with Christ. Um, and that's that's not a small thing to do. That's a really huge step to take in your life. Um, so that book is, is a really masterful piece of pastoral theology in helping Christians realize what they're doing, uh, what an honor, what a calling, what a privilege it is to stand with Christ. Uh, so that's that was really extremely successful in his own lifetime. And it's a, a work that's available in English, um, really worthwhile reading for pastors, also for ordinary Christians as well. Um, wow, that's a great list. Thank you. Um, Welcome. Good place to start. Where where would you say your favorite, what, what's one of the books that you keep coming back to in terms of Bavinck's works? Mm. Um, well, at the, at the moment, I'm really um, working away on a translation of some of his work in, into English. Um, so I come back to them every day just now because I'm trying to finish the translation. Um, and it's a series of letters between Bavinck and one of his best friends. Um, his friend was was a guy called Christian Snukrochronje, who studied theology or studied with Bavinck. He started off as a really liberal student and then converted to Islam and wow. has a really unusual life in lots of ways, quite a complicated character. But he and Bavinck had this very fruitful friendship from the student days until Bavinck dies, where they're constantly exchanging ideas, trying to convince each other, um, but also just being friends. So that's a work that I've, I've 
kind of gone back to a lot over the years since I first read it, and now come back to it every day as I try and finish translating <laughs> it. Um, but it's a really remarkable insight into a Christian theologian sustaining a long-term, a lifelong, meaningful friendship with a skeptic, and then with someone who actually embraces another religion. Did, did, he, um, did I, he ever come round? Um, I, I, not as far as I know, but you know, right. God knows what's in our hearts. Oh, of course, um, of course. But um, they're, they're really moving letters at lots of points. Um, uh, another work that I come back to, um, that again, I'd I really like to translate at some point is Bavink's book on re raising teenagers, which he wrote when his own only child was um, going through her teenage years. Um, I've never really read another book like it. It's, it's quite unique mm. um, as a history of the teenage years and as a kind of Christian psychology of you know, what's going on in a young person's life. In, in those years in adolescence and how do parents and churches help those young people navigate the challenges of, of that also specifically in, in all of the kind of challenges that the modern world puts upon them and the clash of um the clash of claims that you get between you know church and the home for teenagers growing up in christian homes and the wider secularizing society around them so Bavink basically lived in a younger version of the Western world that we inhabit today, which is what makes him so worthwhile because mm. the questions that he asks are still very recognizable and the answers that he gives are so carefully thought through. Um, so that's, a, again, a book that I've gone back to and keep on going back to over and over. Um, is that one available in English? So not yet, but hopefully it will be at some point. So yeah, um, I really to want to translate it before my kids are teenagers because <laughs> I, I need it. <laughs> um, so that's, again, it's a great work, but there's just, he spent his lifetime writing fascinating stuff like this. And what we have in English is, is really the tip of the iceberg. So uh, there are a few of us who are working away to try and get more and more of the iceberg out of the water so that we can all benefit from it. That's great. Now, now one of the things you mentioned in your biography is that uh, previously people would look at Bavink and see two Bavinks. Mm. Can you explain that for us? Yes. Um, so when you get to know his life a bit, what initially might seem surprising or odd, if you yourself are from you know, a theologically orthodox, reformed background especially, is that Bavink comes from this conservative Calvinist church and is really committed to it as well, and yet um, he's so thoroughly engaged with the modern world. And he really wants to be at the center of modern society in lots of ways as well in modern culture. And he's really appreciative of a lot about the modern world. Um, and the way that he that you see both, you know, this recognizable old school Calvinist orthodoxy and at the same time, this thoroughly modern person, um, the way that that seems to come together can take some reformed readers by surprise. So people used to talk a lot in the 20th century about there being not one but two Bavinks, where really the, the way to understand his life is that you see him as a Jekyll and Hyde figure. Uh, he just doesn't know what he wants to be. Um, <laughs> you know, he's grown up in this Orthodox church and there's this attractive, you know, stimulating modern world around him and he likes that too and he just can't decide which camp he wants to stay in. So he's just always flip-flopping back and forth between the two. So, um, so but what, I don't think... What aspects of him taking up the modern world is it that they they see as contrary to his orthodox background? Um, so things like his um, appreciation for a lot of the insights of modern psychology, okay. uh, his openness to modern science, um, his support of um, what we could call pluralistic liberal democracy, hmm. um, where different 
groups who have different worldviews have the right to um, to coexist within the same society, and Bevink thinks that's something to defend. Um, oh, there are lots and lots of things that, that mark him out as, as being quite modern. Um, and I guess that one's interesting too, because he's living in the Netherlands, which had that great sort of reformed heritage, particularly in Kuiper, um, yeah. sort of le- leading yeah. the country as a Christian country. And so then coming yeah. out of it, he must have been at the at that moment of, of sort of change in that society. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so what I've tried to show in the book is that actually the way that Hermann Bavink tries to be an orthodox Calvinist and, and a modern person isn't really his his own unique creation. So I've tried to show that. So the biography begins with a couple of chapters on his family and his church mm-hmm. background, his denomination, that shows that actually the questions that he asks and the things he tries to achieve are just things that his family are trying to do. So, um, so there's a I begin with the the chapter on his on his parents with something his father wrote in his autobiography um, about the steam train as this remarkable thing as one of the best things to happen in his lifetime, because it means that you can travel around the world so quickly all of a sudden and that you know the steam train like, obliterates your sense of space and time if you're yeah. a 19th century person because you know all of a sudden within a matter of hours you could be hundreds of miles away and that just blew people's minds, um, so. Herman Baving's dad thought this was a great thing, and he was a really deeply pious um, right. Calvinist. Um, but not all pious Calvinists in that period or pious reform people thought the steam train was good. For some of them, they thought this is a really bad thing that you can zoom around the world all of a sudden. Think of all the evil that could spread. Um, <laughs> so I've tried to show that actually within that kind of background, he comes from a family that's just really open to modern culture. And that doesn't think this is all necessarily bad or doom and gloom, um, but they think that they can step forward and push their kids forward into this modern culture without letting go of their their orthodox Calvinist faith. Well, that sounds really relevant for us. Mm. I mean, if they thought the yeah. steam train was good, what about the internet? And, yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so, so that that sounds like it's that he he has the sort of thoughts that would be uh, very helpful for how we how we should live in this modern culture because we can't even get away from it maybe back then they could try but yeah and he's certainly not unique in thinking that the christian faith is a faith for all of life um i mean if you if you go back a few centuries to john calvin yep. you find you know something really similar that you live life quorum deo before the face of god mm. and that's all of life and uh, and also life in society as well as you know life on your knees by your bedside when you pray um all of it is before god's face um so there's a kind of um useful lesson that you can learn by reading a theologian from further back like calvin or if you go further back and you read someone like augustine mm. who's really trying to think through uh, you know in the confessions for example the old life has gone and i'm trying to put together a new life now that I'm in Christ. Um, but to try and um, use examples from, you know, the fourth century or the 16th century to think through life in the 21st century is really fruitful, but you have to do a lot of work to make yeah. that jump over centuries and centuries. Whereas the thing that's so interesting with Bavink is that, as I said before, it really is a younger version of the world that we live in. It's so recognizable. And the kind of questions that he's asking about something like technology um, the, you you can just carry that forward, and um, it, it's very applicable today. It's very fruitful to use to think Christianly. Let's um let's move a little to the, the book you mentioned previously, um, Trinity and Organism. Um, yep. that was was that your first book? 
That was my first book. It was based on my doctoral thesis, and it was on Bavinck's view that um, that the triunity of God, that God, that there is one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that's something that is actually revealed in the world itself, um, but in a way that keeps the three and oneness of God as something that's completely unique to God. Um, so, can you, can you if you think that of some of yeah, indeed. So if you think of some of the um, well-meant but heretical children's talks that we've all heard at some point to explain the Trinity, like, yes. hey, kids, did you know that water can be an ice cube and it can be vapor and it can be liquid? Um, that's just like God. So, um, you know, God is somehow revealed in the world through the, the three-leaf clover or, mm. um, you know, or through like, um, or through, through through water, for example. Yeah. Um some Christians in the history of the church have tried to find ways that they think the triune God is revealed in the world by looking for you know those three-in-one patterns. But Bavinck thought that the three-in-oneness of God was was really something that is unique. Um, it's just the way that God is, and it's not something that that can be replicated elsewhere. Um, so God is is just utterly unique like that. But at the same time. Bavinck was a reformed theologian, so he believed that the world is a general revelation of God, um, just as scripture is a special revelation of God. So for Bavinck in saying that the world is the general revelation of God, he also said that God is the Trinity. So the world is the general revelation of the triune God, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how do you think that through in a way that keeps the three and oneness of God unique? So this book was all about ways that Bavinck tries to do that. And um, I mean, the book in a nutshell is that for Bavinck, what's revealed generally about the triune God in the world is not a three in one pattern of what we could call unity and diversity, mm. you know, diverse things that exist together yeah. as one. Instead, it's an it's what I call in the book a non numerical pattern of unity and diversity. Right. So if you think about the like the cosmos itself, it is one thing. Yeah. There's one universe, um, but that's made up of and uh, this vast complexity of parts seems infinite to us, although it's finite from God's perspective. Um, and all of these parts are made to pull together to a common mm. goal, which in Christian thought is the glory of, of its creator. Yeah. So the world, Bavinck says, is really more like an, uh, the best way to describe it is the, with the image of an organism. Yeah. Because the organism, I mean, this is the kind of language of the day in philosophy and biology in his context, but the organism is one thing. It has one life. It all pulls together for a common goal, um, but it's made up of all these diverse parts yep. that constitute it. Um, so he said that the universe is like an organism because God is the Trinity. Um, so, and that's why the book's called Trinity and Organism. So it's a way of trying to think about life in the light of the Trinity, where everything is somehow like God. It's a revelation of God, everything that exists, but God is still unlike everything else because God is the Trinity. And that sounds quite uh, Pauline in that, you know, Paul would describe the church as a body. It's got yeah, one purpose. It's, it's got unity. It's even unified yeah. in Christ. Um, but yet yeah. it has different members, different parts that are used for different things and have different purposes um, as part of that yeah. one unifying purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So Bavinck thinks that scripture is just full of what he calls organicist imagery um, of, of body, of the body made up of lots of parts and so on. Um, so he thinks that this is just... Christian language. And there are some philosophers who do really significant things with organicist ideas and, um, and 
ways of thinking in the 19th century and Bevink has read them. But I think fundamentally for Bevink, this is some, an idea that goes way, way back to Paul, for example, mm. to, to a lot of early Christian writers. Um, so yeah, for him, this is the way that scripture, uh, the kind of imagery that scripture chooses to talk about the church and, and the creation itself. And, and I can see then how there could be a connection between that concept in Bavink's mind and his view of, say, liberal democracy. Yeah, I think so. So that's part of what I was trying to get at, actually, between the first book and then the biography. How is it that Bavink thinks you can square something like um, having a really high view of scripture, being a committed Orthodox Calvinist, but also thinking that liberal democracy is, is a good thing and mm. something to support? And I think that for Bavink, this way of thinking about the way that the world is and works, where it's always trying to hold together diverse things, that also because of sin are drifting apart, uh, further and further apart and fracturing and fragmenting. How does Christianity give us tools to think about how to hold things together and reconcile things um, and to pursue some kind of harmony? Um, so I think, that, yeah, it's a way of thinking that suits that lends itself quite well to supporting liberal democracy. And, I think and, there are other reasons in the background that he supports it too, like his parents had grown up before there was liberal democracy and where there was a, a kind of military strongman monarch who persecuted yeah. their church and so on. So for Bavink, liberal democracy is really attractive because it means you can live with freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. But I think, yeah, the, the kind of um, way of thinking about God is actually significant somewhere deep down for him on this. And, and again, um, he seems to have touched on something that's so... Uh, relevant for today as we see our society fracturing um, mm. at, the, at the core and having diversity that can't exist in unity. Um, it, it seems like reading that sort of theology coming mm. out of Bavink is just critical for the way that we need to think about how to, how to live together. Yeah, I, I agree very much. Um, he and his tradition have got really um, searching resources to think about and um, and I, I'm not sure where those uh, ideas are engaged with in other theological traditions quite as um, rigorously as they are in Bavink's uh, neo-Calvinist tradition, as we call it. Uh, and there are people who work on this as well. I have colleagues who work, use that tradition to think through, for example, how Christians and Muslims should relate in the Western world. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a really significant issue as well. So um, there is there is work that goes on in this, in this area as well. And the tradition is, is a really fruitful one and thinking Christianly about liberal democracy. Well, look, I think that's all we have time for, James. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a treat to talk to another Eglinton about Bavink. Likewise. And thanks for introducing all our listeners to Bavink. Uh, James's new biography, Bavink, a critical biography, uh, is available now if you want an introduction. And uh, this has been the Reformers Bookcast, and you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to talking with you next time.